message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated, you can uh, open your Bibles to Genesis 39. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you today and you'd like to read along, it will be up here on the screen. But we'd love for you to uh, find there's some Bibles in front of you. Uh, or, or in the seats in front of you, you can grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to take one of those Bibles, uh, and write your name in the front of it, and, and take that and read that at home. Uh, we'd love for you to have that as a gift. It's actually, we're going to be on page 39. It's Genesis 39, and it actually uh, kind of works out that it's in on page 39 this morning. You can find us there. Uh, this morning we talked about, you know, in the past we've talked about that there's three questions that when we have chaos and dilemma in our life, that we're pretty prone to ask of ourselves. Why me? Why this? And why now? Okay, God, why, why has this come to me? And why this? Out of all the things that could kind of throw me off, why, why this? And especially right now. God, this is not the time. You know, I've already got enough chaos in my life, and, and yet here it comes. And so those three questions are ones that we have asked. I believe that they have asked that from the beginning of time that mankind is there, and that when dilemma and catastrophe and chaos and confusion comes to his life, that he begins to ask those three questions. And I can promise you that in some form or fashion, every one of us in here have asked those questions. Maybe not in an audible way, and maybe not even to God, but we've just kind of philosophically asked that. You know, why is this happening? And yet I would challenge you this morning that there is one question I believe that is even more penetrating than that, is even deeper than that. Because it takes the focus off of ourselves and it really kind of asks more of an eternal question. Where were you, God, or where are you, God? I remember after September 11th, the original September 11th, and and just that catastrophe and that, that chaos and all the confusion that followed that event. America felt, for the most part, that we're not really vulnerable to to foreign attack. And then all of a sudden, it comes on our own soil and our own, you know, the people uh, that that people worked with and family members. And one of the things that was pretty prevalent in newspapers, magazines, and media after that, where was God? I don't know if you asked that question. I, I don't remember asking that question, but I remember reading, going, you know, is, is this really the heartbeat of America right now? Because we feel this vulnerability. And that in a time that maybe a lot of people in a secular society would kind of turn away from spiritual things. And yet on a day like that, when they feel so violated, they feel so invaded and so susceptible to danger in their own life, where was God? And there's a lot of ways you can ask that question. Some is kind of a blind thing. Okay, God, you're supposed to protect us from these things. So where were you, God? Isn't this what you're supposed to do, kind of protect us? And then there's going to be other times in our lives that I believe in the lives of believers, people that really do have faith in the one true God, that we have chaos in our lives, and, and there's heartbreak. Maybe it's the, the passing of somebody that we loved. Maybe it's other catastrophe that is such, so deep. And we prayed one way, and we prayed for one direction, and yet... We didn't get that answer. And inevitably, even those of strong faith may ask themselves, God, where were you? God, where are you? It's really the prevailing question that we see here. And and Joseph never says that. And yet, 
there is such a temptation, I believe. I, I, I believe that it maybe went through his mind in chapter 39. What we see by this time that Joseph has been sold into slavery. Uh, he went to go take, you know, kind of check on his brothers. His brothers hated him. We were very aware of that because chapter 37 said that, you know, three different times that they hated him. Why? Because he was the favorite son. And we see this generational sin passed down to, from Abraham to his son and now from Jacob to his sons. And all of a sudden we see this confusion, the chaos that it creates and the division that it creates in the family. And they see Joseph coming over in Dothan there to kind of check on them and see how the things are going with the flock. They were there with all the sheep and everything. And, and it says that they began to devise a way to kill him. And we said that one of the big lessons last week is, you know, if we don't deal with things in our heart and we don't get, you know, really spiritually right, that all of a sudden thoughts turn into actions and actions turn into consequences. It's one of the biblical truths from the beginning to end. We see it Old Testament, we see it New Testament, that we do reap what we sow. And we looked at James and James said that, you know, it, sin comes from a place where our own evil desires give birth, we act upon it, and then from that sin comes death. Well, folks, that's, that's not a real popular message in this day and time. And yet it's the biblical message. It's the message that this is really what takes place. And that doesn't mean that the minute that we sin that we fall over dead. What it means is there is death to relationships. There's death to hope. There's death to a lot of things that God stirs up within us when that thought and that persuasion of the heart, that condition of the heart, turns into an action, and that action then has consequences. And so what we find is that Joseph, because the brothers decide, you know, we really don't want his blood on our hands. Wouldn't it be better off if we just sold him? That way we profit a little bit. We got a little bit of loose change in our pockets. And we can officially say we did not lay a hand on him. And so they kind of play this word game. They go back. They bring this, uh, the, the coat of many colors, Joseph's coat. And they had scattered it with blood. And they said, Dad, you know, is, is this Joseph's coat? And they know the whole time that it's Joseph's coat. And he says, yes. And he begins, begins to mourn. And as we ended last week, Joseph is now being taken to Egypt. Now, here's the thing, guys. Because we're running to this verse, with this conclusion of the story, we have to see the sovereignty of God in all of this. That God just doesn't catch up with us at the end. But sometimes we act as though, God, okay, you weren't there. We ask the question, God, where are you? As if we're kind of waking up this slumbering God, and then God's going to catch up. Now, we do that as parents. Parents, have you ever... Uh, forgotten something, an, uh, a date, and, and you know you forgot something that you were supposed to do, and then you're reminded on Friday that it's Saturday morning, and you scurry to, to make well with it, okay? Or, you know, our, our eternal favorite is, oh, yeah, Mom, I have a project due tomorrow, you know? And I have to make a life-size sculpture of the tower of, you know, of this or whatever, and then all of a sudden you're going... Okay, it's 9.30 at night. What is open? You know, is Walmart open 24 hours? Can I go do this? And we scurry to, to catch up. Please understand, guys, God is not like that. God, we don't wake God up with our prayers and our pleas. We don't wake him up. And then God goes, oh, Sherry, I didn't know that was going on. Let me scurry to make right. This truth was true back in Genesis 37, guys. And it's true in chapter 38 and 39 and you know, 40 and all the way to 50. 
It's, it's over the whole thing. We just don't see it yet. All we see is the chaos. And, and I'm just telling you, not to discourage you in your walk with Christ and in your spiritual walk, but more times than not, because we're in a fallen world, it's going to seem like we have much more chapter 37, 39, 40, 41, instead of chapter 50, verse 20. And that's why faith takes us to a place, okay, do I believe even in this condition, in this total chaos, in the hurt that has been inflicted upon my life, do I believe that God truly is sovereign, that he's over all things, and that even in the midst of this deep hurt of my life, that he is working for his glory and for my good? It takes a lot of faith. Because sometimes we won't have any evidence for that knowledge except for what God has proclaimed himself. And that was my question to you last week. Do we really believe this? It's a great bumper sticker if we just want to kind of throw it out there. You find somebody in chaos in their life and go, hey, just remember. And, and guys, when we do that with our faith, it becomes so caustic. Their heart is broken and you throw this verse out there. Even though there's so much truth in that verse, if we don't understand and just kind of love them to understand, they're in chapter 37. They're not in chapter 50 yet. And they may not even have an understanding of the truth of chapter 50 yet. Maybe this morning, that, that's you. You're in chapter 39, you're in chapter 40 or 41, and you want to believe this? You want to really believe that whatever is happening in your life right now, even if it seems like it's so much evil, that somehow God is working two things, for his glory and for our good, for your good. Let's look at the rest of the story here. We begin to see that he goes to a place where he would have never been able to to go himself. He ends up in Egypt. And we're going to see in the coming chapters, in the weeks to come, that this is the most strategic place on planet Earth that he could be. That doesn't mean that God couldn't have done other things, but this is the way that God is doing it because there's going to be a great famine. And at threat of this famine is the people of the heritage, the people of the covenant that God has promised the covenant continue to. Abraham's seed and, and his family and his uh, uh, the legacy and, and all the, the, the people that come after Abraham. God could have done it a lot of different ways. God decides to do it this way. He places Joseph in a place that Joseph could have never have been put himself. By all the, the scheming, with all the uh, hard work, with all this, Joseph would never have been able to be in Egypt in this position of influence without the movement of God. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we read verse 1. <coughs> now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. In other words, there's a strategy that's happening. God's putting Joseph in a strategic place, again, that he could not have ever gotten into himself. But God is working all this out. Look at verse 2. And I want you to look at the first five words. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of, the, of his Egyptian master. Now, again, for those that may not be familiar with this story, Joseph is kind of like a young prince in his own family. His dad had given him this coat of many colors. He was very much the, the special one, the chosen child kind of. One, and that's why the brothers hated him. And so he goes from this kind of princely kind of, okay, you're going to inherit all this, you're, you're the favored one, to within a 24-hour period, that robe is stripped from him. 
He stands, the Bible says that he stands naked on the, on the block to be sold as a slave. And so that's not just to be graphic. It's not to, to try to be sexual there. It's trying to say, okay, look what the Bible is telling us. He went from this place of embellished coat to a place of nakedness to be sold as a slave. God is trying to tell us something there. That in a 24-hour period, this can happen. So he goes from this place, and he goes down to this place, and all of a sudden, you can only imagine that in the back of his mind is, why me? Why this? Why now? Or perhaps he's asking even that more penetrating question. God, where are you? God, where are you? You're the one that gave me these dreams. You're the one that put in my heart that somehow I was going to be over even my family, that you had a special call upon my life. God, where are you? Well, verse 2 tells us. Where is God? He's with Joseph. And if you read ahead, you're going to see that it mentions that seven more times. One time very specifically, but other times it mentions that, uh, that God is there with him, that the Lord. Now, looking if you have your Bible open, do you see how the, the letters are written? It's either going to be, the, the word Lord is either going to be in all capitals or it's going to be in small caps. How many of you, if you have your Bible, do you see that? Now, the translators, uh, because this was written in Hebrew originally, uh, they had many different names for God. And each one of those, they wanted to, instead of just saying God every time, they said, okay, we want to kind of reflect the name of God that they were actually calling upon. <coughs> this is the most intimate, the personal name of God. This is the name Yahweh. If you've ever heard Jehovah, Yahweh, it's what the Israelites, this is the covenant name of God. So he's not saying, okay, and the Lord, that is just God in general, was with Joseph. No, the God of the covenant, personal God, the God who has made a covenant with his great-grandfather Abraham, that Lord, that God is with you, Joseph. And we see that he doesn't go back and forth and just say God. He uses the same terminology, the same phrase, this Lord, seven different times. Why? Because he wants to know, okay, look, you may not feel me, you might see me, it looks like your life is in total chaos, but I, the God of the covenant, the one who has promised you, I'm keeping my promise. And he's with him, and he begins to to give him prosperity, and uh, he begins to, uh, (coughs) excuse me, that, that he is with us. And there's something about if you just know that God is with you, doesn't it kind of change everything? But there's times in our lives that we're going, okay, God, where are you? Do you remember in the New Testament? You know, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This in the New Testament. Remember Mary and Martha? Do y'all remember those two? They were sisters. And they had a brother. Do you remember the brother's name? Lazarus, okay. And Lazarus is, is sick. And so they send for Jesus. Now, this is a family that hosted Jesus many times. They're good friends. We would say today that, you know, probably Jesus stayed at their house. And so these are people that are very familiar. They're very friendly with, they have a personal relationship with Jesus. And uh, Mary and Martha, when they hear that their brother Lazarus is deadly sick, go get Jesus, go get Jesus. Because they really have a faith. They are people of great faith, and they believe that Jesus can really make a difference. Well, they send for Jesus and then the Bible tells us that he actually stays away for at least four days because by the time he gets there, it says that Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Look, John chapter 11, verse 21. <coughs> when Jesus finally comes, 
Again, Lazarus has been four, dead for four days. Okay? Look what Martha... Now, is Martha a woman of faith? Yes. This is the one who believes in Jesus, okay? And she's, I don't want to say pals with Jesus, because I think that diminishes the reality. She has great faith of who Christ is, the Son of the living God. And she knows that Jesus can make a difference. And look at her words. Martha said to Jesus, when he comes there, and, and her brother's been dead now for four days, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know that that's accusatory. Again, when we ask God, where are you? It can be said in a confused way. It can be said in an accusatory way. I think when Mary, I mean, when Martha says this, I think she's going, I have faith in me. I just don't understand where you were because we sent for you, but I just knew that if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. That's Martha. I don't know about you, but Mary is always considered a little bit more the spiritual one. She's the one that's always bowing. Martha's busy about doing things. Mary's more about worshiping Jesus. And so she gets at a shot at it. And, and when she's inside, and, and when they tell her, hey, Jesus is here, look what it says, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's the spiritual one, the really spiritual one. This is reality, guys. That when we know that there's a God who is all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-everything, and when chaos comes in your life and really hurt comes, and in this place death comes, Jesus, we send for you. Where were you? Again, I don't know that this is accusatory as much as it is just heartbreaking. Jesus, if you would have been here, he'd still be alive. Because we love our brother. And we know that you love our brother. And so we're just kind of confused. Since we did breach out to you, why you delayed and why you showed up days later. John chapter 11, verse 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly. I love that word, plainly. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go into him. Do those words automatically comfort you, Jeff? If you just lost your brother? I'm glad I wasn't here. I mean, it sounds kind of caustic when you're going, okay, Jesus, we sent you, know, we sent you an email, we texted, we, we did a whole bunch of things, we got word of you, and from what we could tell, you weren't that far away, and yet you delayed in getting here and the worst possible thing has happened. Lazarus said, our brother has died. And then for Jesus to come back and to say it plainly, this is not coded in any way. Okay, this isn't, well, here's the appropriate thing to say. I'm sorry for your loss. Now, listen to what he says. Lazarus has died. They're going, we got that. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he comes out. Now, what was the motivation? Look at that verse. What is the motivation of what they can't quite grasp, but what Jesus said was the whole purpose for his delay? Do you see it in that verse? Yeah, so that you'll believe. I want you to grow. 
I want you to know that it's not just when I'm here, that it's not just, you know, when you see the evidence. I just want you to know that you can trust. When I make you a promise, when I give you my life, I, I want you to know so that you can grow in your faith. And then he goes and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Guys, there's going to be times in our lives when we called out to Jesus on Tuesday and something drastic happens on Thursday and we have to ask, and we don't have to ask, but, 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 but we're just kind of built to ask, God, where were you? I prayed. I, I covered this in prayer. I, I even read some scripture. I, I did this. And I, and I haven't had the prayer group at, at church. I put it on group me and the ladies were praying. I somehow, we need to grasp that this sovereign God is always working for his glory and for our good, even when we don't have any evidence of it. And they had no evidence of it, even though they had total faith. These were people of great faith. Had you been here, he'd be alive. They had faith in the saving ability of Jesus Christ. Now let's get back to Joseph. Because what we see here is that the presence of God, in that case the presence of Jesus, just gave them a feeling like, okay, now Jesus is here, And here to save the day. Verse 3, chapter 39. (coughs) Genesis 39. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Again, we, we see that mentioned again. And that the Lord caused all that he did, that is Joseph, to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. We don't have a time frame here. We don't know if this took six weeks, six months, six years. We don't really know. But Joseph is placed, and he has the good fortune. We know it's God's blessing and his placement to work inside where Potiphar, the head of this whole thing, this very important man, think general in our days. He's a general. He's kind of the general of the armies, of Pharaoh's armies, a very important man. And uh, that he's, and Joseph begins to work in his house. And, and, and Potiphar, who probably wasn't really keyed to give mind to a lot of the people that were serving him, he begins to notice, Joseph, you kind of stand out. Everything you do, you do well, and it finds success. Now, we're told the reason for that, because the Lord is there, and the Lord is blessing him. Potiphar just knows, man, everything you touch turns to gold. Everything you do is just great. And so he keeps on giving him more and more responsibility to the place where he now has responsibility of Potiphar's whole household. He said, look, you're in charge of everything. Can you imagine a Warren Buffett coming up to you? He said, look, man, I'm so impressed. So impressed with your abilities, Daniel. You just know all these things. I'm going to put all of my billions of dollars under your, you know, just your wisdom. Wow. That's basically what's happening. He said, you're in charge of the house. You're in charge of this. You're in charge. And you can only imagine that once again, there's a lot of people going, the new kid. He's now over us. You know, you haven't been here six weeks, maybe six months. And yet now you're over us. And yet Joseph gets this success. Why? Because the Lord is with him. And God God prospers him that. And this is where we begin to again say that this is the personal name of God. Look at verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. There's a nice place to be in life. 
I don't have to worry about anything. All my stuff is taken care of. I'll get a man, am I going to have a cheeseburger tonight or am I going to have this? You know, just what am I going to eat tonight? And that's the only thing he's worried about because Joseph is taking care of all the rest of his business. <coughs> now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, why is that thrown in there? Why did we need to know this about Joseph? He's already got, you know, God is blessing. He's with him. He's letting this prosper. Because it's very important in the next part of the story. In fact, the actual Hebrew, if you translated it directly, says that Joseph was built. In other words, he has a six-pack. Okay. He, this guy is, he's, he is probably still very young. He's either in late teens, early 20s at this point, more than likely. And he is just a, he's built. That's, that's the Hebrew word that's used there. Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. In other words, I, I want to be with you in an intimate way. Well, you're a young kid. The boss's wife comes on to you, flirts with you, and then gets beyond flirting and gets very suggestive and says, here's my desire. And I can only imagine that even though the most faithful of, of men at that point are kind of confused because there's just all kinds of, okay, what if I refuse? What if this? And, you know, there's just a thousand different things probably flowing from his mind. And yet, because he is a man of God, because God's hand is upon him, because he wants to be faithful to God, he doesn't start coming up with all kinds of excuses. He just says no. Instead of trying to find a reason to, he finds himself reason why not to. There's something good to try on our lives, isn't it? Have you ever been in the midst of temptation and you find yourself kind of trying to find a reason to? I mean, remember the brothers just two chapters ago? Let's go ahead and sell him into slavery instead of beating him to a pulp because that way we can at least say, we didn't lay a hand on him. It's all a word game. And Joseph doesn't play a word game. I, I, he's not putting through his mind, hey, I have no options here. You know, I have this favor, and if, if I deny her, she's going to get mad, and she's going to probably share that, and, and somehow this is not going to work out for me. He's not trying to find a reason to. He's finding the one reason not to. Look at verse 8 and 9. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he, ha- that he has in my charge. He is not great, uh, he's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great witness, wickedness and sin against God? He, he gives three reasons there. He says, number one, there has been trust placed in me by your husband. He's entrusted me the care of his home. Number two, he said, okay, because you're his wife, you're not my wife, you're his wife. And, and then the winning won, because this would be sin against God. <coughs> Excuse me. At a time when it had been so easy to find a reason to, he doesn't even dabble into that, guys. He shuts his mind down for a reason, too. And he comes back with solid reasons not to. And so he denies her. Incredible integrity. 
And he doesn't become a victim in this whole situation of unfairness. He doesn't try to reason away from truth. He just follows God. What happens is pretty dramatic. In verse 10, notice that it says that she, this wasn't a one-time thing. She comes back. And in verse 10, it's not up here, I don't think, but uh, how often did she come back? Day after day. He didn't just not answer the door. I'm going to pretend like nobody's here. I mean, every day. Every day, day after day. He's faced this in, and he stays faithful, and he just stays very much. Okay, this is what God has called me to do, and I'm going to be faithful to do it. And so he's this man of integrity. And then she comes up with one final master plan. She sends everybody else home. So that the only two, in probably this huge mansion, this really big estate, they're the only two. Sends everybody else out so that perhaps if Joseph was just worried, perhaps, that others would know, she's eliminated all that. Verse 12 says, she called him by the garment. Uh, She comes in and says, okay, I I want you to lie with me. She catches him by the garment saying, lie with me. Then he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Story over crisis averted. Or is it? He did everything that you would have. If I had a son, and he said, Dad, here's my predicament. The boss's wife keeps on hitting on me. How do I? I would say, son, you just flee. Oh, quit the job. Do this. Now, he couldn't do that. He's a slave within this environment. So he can't. The only thing he can do at that point, and what I would advise my son, what you would advise your son to do, flee. You run. He does that. <laughs> and here's what we expect from God when we do the right thing that God would work out all the details. I mean, be honest. Don't, don't you expect that when. Doesn't it make sense in your mind that if you blow it and then catastrophe happens, that you kind of look back and go, well, I gave in. This is kind of the fruit of my choice. And for the most part, do we really have a problem with that? I mean, we don't like the conditions of that, but we read, you reap what you sow, and so we're going, okay, this is a biblical principle. God, no wonder, you know, my ears fell off. You know, I, I, no wonder this happened to me because I did something that was evil in your sight. But guys, let's be equally as honest that as much as we kind of get that, that there is something in our own human form of justice it says, okay, if I do the right thing, God, will you come over and at least kind of tap me on the back and give me an attaboy? The problem is, the story is not over. Puffer's wife begins to tell everybody that it was Joseph who assaulted her, and she has evidence. Remember, he ran out so fast, and she grabbed that he left without his cloak, his outer garment, and she grabbed onto that. And so she starts shouting from the heavens. Joseph tried to come in here and do inappropriate things with me. And here's the evidence. I started screaming and he ran for his life. But here's his cloak. Here's his coat. Verse 16 through 18. Potiphar comes home. The husband comes home. Then she laid up his garment by her until his his master came uh, home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, 
came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. We're not told if Potiphar believes her or not. I don't know if he believes his wife to save his own honor. Hey, this is going to be looking good. I mean, we're not told, probably because it's really not important. But from what we are told is that he takes action against Joseph. The one man of integrity here, the one who did the right thing, and he takes action. And he throws him to prison. And it's at that point, guys, that I'm going, okay, you did the right thing. I've already been sold into slavery. I've already, you know, got the short end of the stick time after time. God, now you're with me and you prosper me, and I'm just doing the right thing. Not only once, I do the right thing over and over and over again. Finally, it comes to a culmination there, and uh, now it is kind of, you know, the husband finds out about it, and he's upset because he doesn't want to blame his wife, so he blames me, and I'm the one that gets thrown in jail. Why me? Why this? Why now? And yet to me, the deeper question, God, where were you? I thought you were with me. God, read verse 5, you were with me. Verse 21. What's the first five words? He gets thrown in prison. And what's the first thing that God reminds us? That the Lord, I I was there. Not just God, not just kind of a feeling about God. No, the covenant name of God himself. The covenant name that he'd given to his great-grandfather Abraham and said, I will keep my covenant. Even when you don't keep the covenant, I will keep the covenant. Even when you're not faithful, I will be faithful. This is God's promise. And God continues that promise. Even though it looks like it's total chaos. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in jail and I did all the right things, it is hard to feel that God is with me. And this is, I'm not discounting feelings because God made feelings, okay? But there are times that the truth of God's word has to rule over our feelings because our feelings can make us a slave to things that are not theologically correct. There are many times that my feelings told me that God didn't care. But I promise you, the Bible tells me, his word tells me that God cares. There's many times that my feelings have told me God doesn't even know that I'm going through this hurt. And yet the word of God says he knows everything that's happening in my heart and my life. There are times, I'm not diminishing feelings. And I'm not saying that we should go around like Spock or some computer and not have feelings. No, he made them and, and he, they're, they're a part of who we are. But there are going to be times in our lives that if we let feelings kind of have the throne of our life and the throne of our heart and the throne of our mind, we are going to be deceived because there's not going to be evidence. But here, God says, he's thrown in jail and we're told this simple thing, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. What is God doing, guys? He's racing to this promise. I will think, work things for my glory and for your good. Doesn't look like that right now. Looks like I, I kind of led you to here, and then all of a sudden you had the, all this favor, and things were really good, and you were the man of the house, and, and all these things. And it seems like in one way that all that has just been kind of 
taken from underneath your feet. And you're just landed in a worse situation now than you were before. And yet God is still working and placing Joseph in a place where he's going to use him for this eventual good. Here's the summary, and then we'll go home. I don't know where you are any more than you know where I am in, in my life. You may be in chapter 37, and, and kind of the, the weirdness and chaos of your life is just beginning. Or maybe you're in chapter 39 or chapter 40, and you're going, Bobby, you just don't understand. It has been hit after hit after hit. And I've tried to be faithful, and I've tried to keep my chin up, and I've tried to be, and I'm praying, and I'm doing all the right things. But it is just like time after time after time, no matter if I'm doing the right thing, it seems like I keep on getting the end, you know, the short end of the stick. And Bobby, to be honest, I'm just wondering, well, where is God? God, where are you? Realize, folks, that is a real question that happens to real people. Please realize this. It has a real answer. Jeff, what was our VBS? What did we try to get every one of our kids to understand in Isaiah? He's with us. If we walk through the waters, he's with us. Yeah. You're going through the waters. And those waters were not just uh, the fun little rides at Six Flags or water. Those waters are flood waters. And yet you go through the waters, and what was this promise that we wanted every two-year-old, three-year-old, five-year-old, seven-year-old, 12-year-old to take for the rest of their life? I'll be with you. Because there's going to be time that that five-year-old, that 12-year-old, that becomes a 22-year-old, becomes a 32-year-old, and he's a father, and he's a, she's a mother, and, and she's, a, a hus- she's a wife or a husband, and there's going to be things that happen in her life that seems like, okay, it's one hit after another after another. And she's going to go, God, where are you? That's why, well, no. Man, in that simplicity, not in bumper sticker theology, not just in this trite little answer, the Lord God is with you. And he's working things for his glory and for your good. And perhaps this morning, that's, that's what you need it more than anything this morning. I trust this very spirit of God to... And that whether you're chapter 37, whether you're chapter 50, maybe you're seeing the fullness of a story come. Because I end with this, guys. And I, I apologize, I wanted a picture of, of my aunt and uncle up here. Because uh, they are precious people in my life. Uh, when I was six years old, my parents divorced. And, and it wasn't pretty. It wasn't very nice. And uh, they didn't play nice. I went to uh, uh, my aunt and uncle's, and they sent me there along with my sister. And uh, my uncle is a, a Pentecostal holiness preacher. I'd never seen stuff like that before. <laughs> my aunt and uncle are the most godly people that I know on planet Earth. This past Thursday, they celebrated their 62nd anniversary. My aunt has lost most of her uh, capabilities. And yet they have remained faithful day after day after day. And why do I share that story with you? I promise you as a six-year-old boy, I promise you as a 12-year-old boy, I promise you as an 18-year-old boy, I wanted my mom and my dad to be back together again. But God placed me in a home, a different home, for a year. 
And that's where my spiritual foundation, I was not saved during that time, but that's where he just started pouring into my life this love that God had for me and opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And while I was 12 when I responded to that, it was one of those, the foundation of my whole spiritual life. It wasn't from those first six years. It was for that year, year and a half that I was with my aunt and uncle. And from that point on, God just had a hold of my life. That's not who would ever want a kid to go through a breakup of a family? And yet, God, I'm not saying, please, we're, we're going to have to cover this in the weeks to come. When things like that happen, don't think that God is causing those events to happen all the time, okay? They're, they're, we've got to be very careful in our theology that we don't see God as the causation of sin because he's not the causation of sin. We'll deal with that theologically later on. But evil was meant against me in my home. And God used it for his glory and for his good. I can testify to that. But I promise you, at that point, as much as a six-year-old could understand, seven-year-old could understand, God, where are you? And I did not see it that moment that day. And so if that's where you are this morning, if you're just saying, God, where are you? Please, I pray that God would just impress upon you the truth of his word and that you would be solidified in that, that knowing that God, just as it says seven different times there, that the Lord God, this covenant God, the one who's made a promise with you, this personal God, he he is going to work for his glory and for your good, even out of evil, even out of things that are broken in this world. God will work for good. Just as we found with Mary, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> You're going to live again, Lazarus. Something they could not even see. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, uh, I pray for those that are going through Uh, Chapter 37, 39, chapter 40, when things are chaos. Father, I pray that they do not hear anything trite about their situation. That they do not hear uh, um, that, Father, that we're just being casual about the hurts of life. Father, I pray that they would know, though, that even in the midst of that hurt, when they go from those three questions about their own suffering that they go to a place of really asking, God, where are you? That you would give them, Father, your word that is eternal, Father, the truth, and that your very spirit would just confirm in their heart and their life that you are God, you are Lord, and that you are working for your glory and for their good, even that evil that was uh, meant against them. Nowhere else, Father, do we get this. Nowhere else do we get this promise except from you. So, Father, let us place our hope not in the eventual outcome, but in your trustworthiness of who you are, that you are sovereign God, you're mighty enough to do it, you are a personal God, you care enough to do it, and that, Father, you have a strategy that you will work. And, Father, help us to rest in that, even though we can't see chapter 50 yet. We love you, Father. We thank you, Father. And we come before you and just ask, take the little mustard seed of faith that we might have this morning and, and, and grow it and build it and mature us, Father, so that we, just as Jesus said to Mary and Martha, I did this so that you would grow in your faith, that you would mature and trust me even more. That's where we stand, Father, this morning. We want to trust you even more. 
as we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.